our Chairman, our dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Peter has reminded us on our last class, we were considering Christ's discourse with the woman at Samaria. We saw some of the very interesting things that the Lord said unto her. Perhaps just to remind ourselves of of, uh, one or two important issues. In verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ said to the woman, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. For the water that I shall give, give him shall be, uh, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And in the Greek there, if you check with the literal dialogue rendering, you will see that when the Lord said to the woman, Whosoever shall drink of the water that I give shall never thirst. It is actually a double negative in the Greek. So the literal dialogue rendered that, um, drink of the water that I shall give him shall not not thirst. Because there's a double negative there, two Greek words. And it emphasises the fact that the person who drinks of that water that he will give will certainly never thirst. You see, the water that he gives is of course the word of truth and it's the goodness of Yahweh that goes with it. A covering for our sins, forgiveness of sins and the opportunity for eternal life. That's the water that the Lord gives. And when we drink of that water we shall never thirst. You know, everything associated with this life just lasts for a little while. You've got to do it over and over and over again. But when it comes to the things of the truth, they are things that will not be taken from us, provided our attitude and our approach is right. You know, in that little uh, episode with Mary and Martha in uh, Luke chapter 10, and Martha's concerned because Mary won't go and help her with the serving at the table, the Lord said to Martha that Mary had chosen that which would not be taken from her because she chosen to give her mind and her time to the word of God, to listen to the teaching of the Master. And that was something that would not be taken from her. And we need to remember these things and get our priorities right in life. There's so many things that we can put our time to but it's all going to be taken from us. We can have an immaculate house, a spotless car, a beautiful garden. But when the Lord returns, we will lose it all. The whole lot will be left behind and we will never have it again. But that which we have given to the things of the truth, in a right attitude and a right spirit, will never be taken from us. And that was a principle that the Lord was trying to impress upon this woman of Samaria. And in verse 15 the woman says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She hadn't really fully understood what he was getting at. You see, the the water that the Lord was going to give wasn't going to stop her going out to that, that, that well to draw water to sustain natural life. She hadn't quite grasped that picture yet. But nevertheless the Lord proceeds to give her that water. First of all, he's got to bring her into a state of mind where where she can receive that water. 
where she can appreciate the gift of God and the, and the goodness that was being extended to her. And so the Lord looking, at, looking to her says in verse 16, Go and call thy husband. And in that very statement, as we noted last time, the Lord laid his finger right on the very weak spot in her life. Go and get your husband. You see, the woman, with that very statement, he touched the sin of her life, that he might bring her to repentance, that she might be brought into a frame of mind where she could drink of that water that the Lord was about to give her. And so... He tells her, go and get thy husband. And in verse 17, the woman answers and says unto him, I have no husband. I have no husband. Now that was true, literally and spiritually. Well, it, it wasn't altogether true, literally, because as the Lord going to point out to her, she had five husbands. But it was, it was true that she wasn't living with her husband at that time. But it was true spiritually too. Because here was a, a woman lost in the world. She was not married to the Lord Jesus Christ. She was not in the way of truth. And so it was true both literally and spiritually. But initially the woman here probably is trying to, to uh, evade the truth of the, question, uh, of, the, of the statement of the Lord. Go and get your husband. Probably she's trying to push that aside for the time being. She's just going to say, well, look, I haven't got a husband. We'll brush that aside and let's get on to something else. But you see, the Lord's answer to her would be absolutely devastating, probably. Here's a man she's never met before. A man that, as far as she's concerned, knew nothing about her. He said, go and get your husband. She's brushed that aside. She said, look, I haven't got a husband. I can't go and get him. And the man says to him, Thou hast well said I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Put yourself in the position of that woman. How would you feel being given an answer like that when you know in your heart that it's true? How did the man know all the secret things of her life? He was one who, who was able to open up her life and reveal all her sins and weaknesses. You see, and the woman in, in answer to that says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She recognised that he was a man who could reveal the mind of God. But first of all, let's consider verse 18 a little more fully. The Lord says, Thou hast had five husbands. It's quite remarkable, you know, that as, as the Lord came into Samaria and he's about to, to uh, 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 extend the grace of God to the people of Samaria, that he, he's in discourse with a woman in this particular set of circumstances. A woman who had had five husbands and was now living with a man to whom she was not properly married. Because, you know, when we go back to the origin of the Samaritan nation, in the second of Kings, chapter 17. And verse 24. We read, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Cuthar, 
from Ivar, from Hamath, from Servavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Um, and, uh, and we find, as we go through the chapter, verse, uh, verse right down to verse 41 actually is relevant, that we won't read all those, but we look at verse 29. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own and put them in houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities where they dwelt. We note first of all from verse 24 that there were five Gentile nations that were brought into the land of Samaria. We learn now from verse 29 that those five different nationalities each made gods of their own. So there were the gods of five nations. The worship of the gods of five nations was set up in the cities of Samaria. Verse 13. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashimah. And the, the, the Arvites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Savavites burnt their children in fire to Adramelech uh, and Anamelech, the gods of Savavain. And so you see these five nations each established their own particular types of worship in that land. But then because uh, of the things that were happening, they sent and they got a, 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 a worshipper of Yahweh to come and establish the worship of Yahweh in that land too. So that in verse 41 we read, so these nations feared Yahweh and served their graven images both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. And so you see, there was the Samaritan nation. They had, they'd had set up in that land the worship of the gods of five different nations. And then in addition to that, they were professing to serve Yahweh. You know, here was a nation that had been married to five husbands. And they were professing to worship Yahweh but were not doing so in the right way. And therefore they were not properly married to him. It's quite remarkable that as the, as, as the Lord spoke to this woman at, 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 at Jacob's well, near, near under Shechem, that she should be in the identical set of circumstances that the nation was. The nation had worshipped five, uh, the gods of five nations. They were claimed to be worshippers of Yahweh but were not properly married to him because they were only doing it in a corrupt way and, and, and that was the identical position that that woman was in in the personal circumstances of her life. So you see that woman stands as a type of that Samaritan nation and through her it was revealed that God's grace was available to that nation provided they, they uh, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and approached him in the right way. You know, and very soon, as we follow this discourse through and we get to the end of that discourse, we're going to see that that woman becomes Christ's herald to the people of her city. She is, in, she is the one who goes back from that well into her city and she rallies the people and brings them out to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, she's in the very condition that that nation was in spiritually. 
And so we see a type being worked out here. And the Samaritan woman stands as a type and representative of her people. And the Lord chooses a woman to be his herald to the people of that city, a woman who is in the very same condition and yet receives the grace and the goodness of Yahweh extended to her. And so in verse 19, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. The Lord has just opened her life up and shown that, it, that, that, that her whole life has been open and naked before his view. She says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now it's interesting to note the changing attitude of this woman to, the, to this man she had met at, the, at Jacob's well. Now first of all in verse 9 we read her saying, we read her addressing the Lord with an element of contempt. How is it that thou being a Jew askest of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And as the woman saw him there tired and thirsty and helpless by that well, and she saw as she thought the dependence that the Lord had upon her to give her a drink of water, she viewed him with contempt saying, oh yes, You'd have no dealings with me if you weren't so desperately in need of water. You see, we go down the chapter a little and in verse 15 we read, it, we read her addressing him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. She's viewing him a little differently now. But now in verse 19 she re- recognises him as a man of God and she's gradually being drawn closer to that man. You know, bound up in that statement, I perceive that thou art a prophet, was really a confession of her own sin. It was really an acknowledgement that all the Lord had said was right. And so she, she had to acknowledge that he was right. And she accepted him as a prophet. So you see, the woman's got quite remarkable qualities really. She doesn't take offence at what he says and, 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 and go off in a huff. She recognises that he's a prophet. She's prepared to face the fact that what he's said about her is right. And she sees that he is indeed a man of God. You know, this point really becomes the turning point in her life. It was, it was this point really on the acknowledgement that he was a prophet that was the turning point in her life. You know, later on as she leaves her water pot and she goes racing back into that city, you know the point that she, she, she impresses to the people of that city? In verse 29, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. That was the thing that hit her harder than anything else in that discourse. He told me all things that I ever did. And that was the turning point in her life. That was the point of conversion really in that woman because she was brought to see herself as she really was and she was brought to recognise that her whole life was open and naked in the eyes of, of the Lord. You know, really, that is the point of conversion in every one of us. It's the point of conversion in all of our lives is the point where it really hits home to us what we really are and that all that we do is open in Yahweh's eyes. We can hide nothing from him. We have no secrets from him. He knows everything. And when that point really hits home, 
and we see ourselves for what we are and we realise he sees us for what we are. That's probably the turning point in the lives of every one of us. You know, that was the case with the Apostle Peter. You know, in Luke chapter 22, we find the Lord speaking words to Peter. Now, at this stage, Peter probably thought he, he was well and truly converted. He probably thought that he was, he was doing pretty well in the truth at this time. But you know, in Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32, the Lord said to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, or the adversary, hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now that conversion didn't come till after that Peter had denied his Lord three times. And after he denied his Lord three times and he went out and wept bitterly, that's where his turning point came. That's where he really saw himself for what he was. And he was a different man from that point on. And you see, thus it was with this woman really. This was the turning point in her life. And that's that's the turning point in the life of every one of us. We've got to come to see ourselves for what we are. And you know, the Lord had to bring that woman to that point before she had any chance of drinking of the water that he could give. And so the Lord has very skillfully brought her to that point. You know, the woman now recognises that he is a prophet. She says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And immediately in verse 20 we find that the Lord, that she now directs another question to the Lord concerning worship. It may be that in this point under the pressure of circumstances it may be that she's trying to turn the attention away from herself. It's probably a thing that every one of us would do under those circumstances. But you see... The woman now has, has come to, to recognise that the man before her is a prophet. And so now she puts to him a very important question. It's possibly a question that had been on her mind uh, for some period of time before. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that is in Mount Gerizim. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see, this was a problem that, that, that presented itself to her mind. The Jews claimed that you had to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans claimed that our fathers worshipped in this mountain and therefore that was the place of worship. And, which, and, the, and the woman was completely unable to sort the matter out for herself. You know, her statement, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You know, when we go back through the history of the Samaritan worship in Mount Gerizim, we find that it had its origin in the days of Nehemiah. And in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, we read of certain things that Nehemiah did at that time. Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 28. We read of the time when Nehemiah has returned to the city of Jerusalem and he finds that the, uh, uh, the Samaritans had established themselves 
in the temple of Yahweh at that time. Now we read in verse 28, um, he's speaking here of the, of the uh, uh, transgression of the, of, of the people in, in marrying strange wives. Verse 28 says, And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. And Nehemiah sent him flying out out of the city of Jerusalem. But you see, Sanballat and this son-in-law of his, whom Josephus tells us was was a man by the name of Manasseh, fled from Jerusalem and they went up to Samaria and they established the worship of the Samaritans in Mount Gerizim. And a a Samaritan temple was built in Mount Gerizim. They built that temple there and established the Samaritan system of worship. That temple that they built was subsequently destroyed by the Jews in BC 129. But however, the ruins of that temple were still there in Mount Gerizim in the days of the Lord. And when the woman said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, possibly she would look up to the ruins of that temple on Mount Gerizim. And and although that temple was in ruins, the Samaritans still carried on their worship at Mount Gerizim. And and, uh, upon the claim that our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You know, the Samaritans made many claims about Mount Gerizim. They claimed that it was upon Mount Gerizim that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. They claimed that it was at Mount Gerizim where Abraham met Melchizedek uh, when, when they brought forth bread and wine in Genesis 14. Those claims were of course false because the book of Genesis tells us that, that, that Abraham offered Isaac upon Mount Moriah and that Abraham met Melchizedek outside of Jerusalem. Those claims were false. But nevertheless, it was true that Abraham and Jacob both worshipped in that very place. Genesis 12, verses 6-7. to We read of the promise of that land to be given to the seed was made in that very place. We read that Abraham built an altar there and worshipped in that place. Thus we read in Genesis 33 and verse 20 that Jacob also came to that very place where the Lord Jesus and that woman were, were having that discourse at that time. They came to that very place and he built an altar there. And so Abraham and Jacob did both worship in that place. And the Samaritans no doubt um, made much of that. And, and, and they made the point that this was the place where Abraham offered Isaac. This was the place where, where, where Abraham worshipped. This was the place where Jacob worshipped and that's why they built the temple there. Of course, that wasn't altogether true. They built the temple there because Nehemiah had kicked them out of the city of Jerusalem and they'd established that worship on Mount Gerizim as a rival worship to the worship of God at Jerusalem. You see, the Samaritans, they only uh, had the five books of Moses. And even that was a bit of a, a, a not, not a very accurate um, text of, of those five books of Moses. They rejected the, the writings of the prophets and the Psalms. You see, you go back to the five books of Moses and there's nothing there in those five books of Moses that says that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Because it wasn't revealed until later time in the days of David and Solomon. 
that it was at Jerusalem that Yahweh would build his temple and that all and that the people would have to go up to Jerusalem to worship. And so the Samaritans really didn't, didn't, didn't have it within their hands to determine whether it should be at Shechem or should be at Jerusalem. You see, they were ignorant of Yahweh's revealed will. And so we read that the Lord goes on in his answer the woman puts the question to him in verse 20 should we worship at Shechem should we worship at Jerusalem Jesus says in verse 21 woman believe me the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father and so the Lord points out to her that the time was drawing very close when they wouldn't be able to worship in either place because both were going to be desolated anyway. The Romans were going to come and sweep down through that land and it wasn't going to be possible to worship at Jerusalem or it wasn't going to be possible to worship at Shechem. But you see, that's the first point that the Lord makes. But notice what he says at the end of that verse. Ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. See, in verse 20 she had said our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You see, and really the Samaritans in maintaining their worship at Shechem were really worshipping their fathers who had been thrust out by Nehemiah and established a rival system of worship. You see, the point of worship was you shall worship the father. And the Lord is leading her to the point that there is one Father in heaven. He is the one that must be worshipped. And and in the very near future, it was going to become impossible to worship him in Jerusalem or at Shechem because the Romans were going to come down and cast them out of that land. You see, but in verse 22, he really answers her question. He says, Ye worship, ye know not what. Ye worship, ye know not what. You know, and the Lord is pointing out to that woman that the Samaritans were completely confused as to what they worshipped or how they were supposed to worship him. They professed to worship Yahweh. But they had only a garbled text of the five books of Moses. And they were still clinging to the remnants of the idolatry of five pagan nations. And the the Lord's pointing out that they were utterly confused of mind and divided in their affections. So they weren't in a position to worship at all. You see, we go back to the book of to the second book of Kings, in chapter 17. And we just take a brief look at verse 30. We find that there were seven gods set up in the land because two of those nations both had two gods each. But we just look at those gods. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. Then there was Nergal. There was Ashimar. There was Nibhaz and Tartak. And there was Adramalek and Anamelech, the gods of Savarpa. It's very obscure what those gods or idols really were. Authorities don't seem to know very much about it. But perhaps 
just one or two things that we've been able to get hold of about one or two of them. Gives us a little idea of the sort of things that were, 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 were involved in the worship of those gods. First of all, we've got the men of Babylon. Babylon means confusion. And indeed the Samaritans had inherited confusion from this set of circumstances. But they made Sakoth Benoth. Two words which means the booths for daughters associated with the worship of Ashtaroth. The religious prostitution that was associated with those things speaks so plainly of the lust of the flesh. You see, things that are very prevalent in the world today. The men of Kathmaith Nergal. It is suggested by one authority at any rate that the word Nergal means a fountain of light. It certainly wasn't a fountain of the light of the truth. But you see, it stands as a symbol of the wisdom of this world. Now, we live in a world that claims to be enlightened. They're talking about it as this enlightened age. But you know, it's never been in greater darkness before in, in all history. But you see, men convince themselves today that the wisdom of this world is enlightenment. You know, Ashimar and, and, and Nibhaz were, were gods of warfare. They were gods of war. And you know, the armies of the nations right through history have been their pride. It speaks of the pride of life. It speaks of the principle of ruling by the strength of one's own arm. You see, we've got um, um, Tartak. He was the god of the spirit world. It speaks of false religions. Then there's, uh, there's Adramelech. And we notice in both the, the, the last part of both of these names, the word Melech, which means a king. And Adramelech was the king of fire and was associated with sun worship. The king of fire associated with sun worship and Anamelech was the king of flocks and herds, which in those days spoke of material possessions. And it's not hard to see that as we look at the significance of these idols, it's not hard to see every one of those prevalent in the world around us today. The lust of the flesh, the, the, the wisdom of this world, the pride of life, ruling by the strength of one's arm, false religion, and the God of material possessions. You see, the Samaritans were still hanging on to all those things and yet professing to serve Yahweh as well. And the Lord says, look, you don't know what you worship. You're so confused in your mind. You're so divided in your affections that you don't know what you worship. You know, it's really quite easy to slip into a situation like that. It's quite easy, admitting the Samaritans are an extreme set of circumstances, they were outside the truth. They were a mixture of, 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 uh, uh, of Gentile ideas. But you see, it's very easy living in a world like we live in today to be in exactly the same position where we don't know what we worship because we don't really know Yahweh because we're not really absorbing the whole of Yahweh's word because we don't really, we become divided in our affections because we want to hang on to the gods of this world the lust of the flesh the wisdom of this world 
the God of material possessions and so on and so forth. We want to hang on to all those things and we become divided. We become used in our minds and divided in our affections. You see, and this was passed on through father to son down through the generations of the Samaritans. You know, I wonder what our children think. They see us come along to the meeting of a Sunday morning to worship Yahweh. And we hear the things of the Spirit Word expounded. But then in the rest of the days of the week, perhaps we place greater importance upon the gods of this world than we do upon the principles of the Spirit. Are they going to grow up knowing what they worship? Are they going to be in a confused state of mind and divided in their affections like the Samaritans were? You know, what of those when they see us of a Sunday morning listening to expositions of the word? But then perhaps it comes to the point of filling in a tax form. And we just twist the facts a little bit so that we can save ourselves a little bit of income tax. Perhaps we present things in a, a slightly distorted matter so that we can extract a little bit more out of the insurance company. You see, are we divided in our affections? Are they going to grow up knowing what they worship? Or are they going to grow up confused in mind like the Samaritans were? You know, and the Lord rebuked that woman, ye know not what ye worship. And you know, knowledge, accurate knowledge, is absolutely vital to acceptable worship. Now John chapter 17 and verse 3, the Lord says, This is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And here were the Samaritans arguing about whether you should worship here or worship there. But they didn't even know what they were worshipping. You see, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul, he prays for the ecclesia at Philippi. And he says in chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, full knowledge that is, accurate knowledge, and in all judgment or discernment. And of course we've got the tragic statement of the prophet Hosea concerning the northern tribes of Israel that my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. And those people were destroyed and the Samaritans were brought in in their place and they didn't know what they worshipped. You see, it is necessary that we have that knowledge, that we're not confused in mind, you see, and, and, and the Lord goes on and he points out that with the Jewish nation it was different. Admittedly, the Jews were really not much better positioned than the Samaritans at that time. But he says, ye worship, ye know not, not, not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. You see, despite the fact that the Jews were disgracing the things that God had given them, nevertheless, they were the recipients of the, the full revelation of God's truth. God had given them his word, he'd given them his law, he'd given them his covenants and they were in possession of the truth and they knew what they worshipped. He says, for salvation is of the Jews. The Jews were the, God, the channel that God had chosen 
for extending salvation to the world outside. You know, when, when um, the Lord was speaking to Nicodemus, who was a Jew, he said, Whosoever believeth, uh, whosoever believeth shall be saved. He broke down all those national barriers and he was impressing Nicodemus that salvation was for all who would believe. But now that he's speaking to a Samaritan, uh, one, uh, a Gentile, he says salvation is of the Jews because he was directing her attention to that nation to whom God had given the precious things of his truth. But then when he spoke to the Jews, he pointed out that those things were not exclusive for the Jews but were for whoever would believe. And so, passing on then through the discourse of the Lord, we come to verse 23 and verse 24. The Lord says, But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is his spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. They're two beautiful verses. I believe that when the background of those verses is, is understood, and when it's understood what the Lord is trying to do with that woman, the teaching of those verses becomes absolutely magnificent. See, the Lord says, the hour cometh and now is. Well, the hour was soon going to come when, when, uh, when, when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed anyway. But he adds, and now is. He says, the time is coming and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Really, that time had always been there. It had never been any different. You see, it had always been that way. Worship was never really dependent on time or place. Under the law, the institutions under the law, of course, had to be honoured. And when the law said you go up to Jerusalem, they had to go up to Jerusalem. And if they didn't, they were liable for punishment. The institutions of the law had to be honoured. But you see, the institutions of the law themselves were only a shadow institution. There was only a schoolmaster or a pedagogos to lead the people to higher things. And so you see, that time had really always been there when the true worshippers would worship in spirit and in truth. You know, the Lord says here, when the true worshippers, the true worshippers, the, the word true means real or genuine. Real or genuine worshippers as opposed to unreal or spurious. Because it shows us that there can be false worshippers. All worshippers are not true worshippers. There's true worshippers and there's false worshippers. But the Lord's speaking here of the true, the real, the genuine worshippers those who genuinely humble themselves before God. He says, they shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, from the Gospel of John, we learn that both spirit and truth are related to Yahweh's word. John 6 and verse 63 says, uh, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In John 17 and verse 17, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer to the Father says, Thy word is truth. 
So both spirit and truth have got relation to Yahweh's word. But I believe here that in this verse, the Lord Jesus Christ is quoting from the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua. And it's very interesting that the the events of the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua took place upon this very spot where this discourse between the Lord and the woman was taking place. And the circumstances of Joshua chapter 24 were very, very relevant to the position that that woman was in. Now in Joshua 24 and verse 14, we read the words that I believe the Lord quotes. Verse 14 says, Now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye Yahweh. And so, here Joshua is impressing the the people of Israel that he's just gathered there and assembled them. This is his final address before he dies. And he urges them, he says, serve Yahweh in sincerity and in truth. Now that word sincerity is quite interesting. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word appears some 87 times in the Old Testament. It's translated sincerity once in this particular place. It's translated sincerely on two other occasions. That's three times out of 87 it's translated either sincerity or sincerely. But 44 times it's translated without blemish in relation to the sacrificial victims. Fourteen times it's translated perfect. Eight times it's translated upright. Six times without spot. Four times it's translated uprightly and whole. And and once each it is translated complete, full or sound. And so, you see, that's the way the word is used in the Old Testament. Forty-four times it's translated without blemish in relation to the sacrificial offerings which were made under the law. Now a sacrifice that was without blemish was one with no parts missing, with no parts damaged. It was whole and complete. Everything was there. Everything was in, 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 in perfect working condition. It was a whole, complete animal. You see, and that's the significance of of that word. You see, Joshua is telling the people here that if they're going to serve Yahweh, it's got to be a complete surrender of their whole self to God. They've got to give themselves to God in their entirety. Every part's got to be there. Every part's got to be working. Every part's got to be completely given under Yahweh. The whole man's got to be given under him. That's what Yahweh's telling them. That's what Joshua is telling the people of Israel. You serve him completely, in complete, genuine, wholehearted service and in truth. You see, they've got to completely surrender themselves to God. They've got to give themselves to God and they've got to serve him They've got to do things for him, do things to his honour and his glory. But those things that they do have got to be according to truth. 
tr- uh, truth or faithfulness. Service to God must be in strict accordance with Yahweh's revealed will. You know, service that's not done in accordance with a master's will isn't really service at all. You know, I might want a pile of bricks moved from one place to another and I might employ somebody to do it. And in the morning I tell them, look, I want those bricks taken from there and I want them put there. And I'll cut me back this afternoon to see how you're going with it. If as soon as I've gone, the person decides, well, what a lot of nonsense putting them there, they'd be much better over there. So they labour all day, they work themselves to a shadow all day putting the bricks over there. But you see, that's no service to me because I don't want them over there, I want them there. And the only service to me is if it's done in accordance with my instructions and they're put where I want them. That's it, so it is with serving God. We've got to serve him in the way he wants to be served, in strict accordance with his revealed will. You see, and that's what Joshua is telling the people there. He says, look, you've got to fear Yahweh. You've got to serve him completely, giving yourself without reserve under him. And you've got to serve him in strict accordance with his revealed will. Now, that was the message of Joshua. Now, it's interesting, perhaps, just to look at the overall context of Joshua chapter 24. In verse 1 we read of the way that Joshua gathered the, all the people together to Shechem. You see, Joshua selected his place. He selected Shechem. And he called all the people together there that he might address them. And, and for verses 1 to 13, he outlines all the goodness of Yahweh that Yahweh had extended toward Israel. How he brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into the land, driven out the inhabitants of the land before them and given them that land. So he reminds them of all the goodness that Yahweh had shown to Israel. And in verses 14 and 15, Joshua calls upon the people to serve Yahweh in sincerity and in truth. In verses 16 to 18, the people respond and they say, we're going to serve Yahweh. We'll never forsake Yahweh for other gods. We will serve Yahweh. Verses 19 to 24 are Joshua's reply and exhortation to the people. Now about verse 19. See, the people have just said, yes, we're going to serve Yahweh. But Joshua says unto them in verse 19, ye cannot serve Yahweh. Because he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, he will not forgive, or as the word means, he will not bear with your transgressions nor your sins. Now what a peculiar thing. Joshua has just said to the people, now look, you be sure you serve Yahweh. They said, oh yes, we're going to serve Yahweh. He says, you can't serve Yahweh. Why couldn't they serve Yahweh? They couldn't serve Yahweh, brethren and sisters, because of the idolatry that was in their lives. They couldn't serve Yahweh because they were confused in their thinking and they were divided in their affections. You see, verse 23 he says, well if you're going to serve Yahweh, now therefore put away the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel. 
And as Joshua looked out upon that nation and he heard their pledge that they were going to serve Yahweh and he saw the confusion that was in their minds and their divided affections serving these idols, he could see that they couldn't serve Yahweh. How could they give themselves without reserve unto Yahweh? How could they walk accurately in accordance with his revealed will when their minds were divided and cluttered up with such idolatry as they were? And he says, you can't serve Yahweh. And he pleads with them to put away the strange gods which were among them. He says, clear, your, clear out the rubbish out of your minds. Get your thinking clear. Get your affections rightly placed. And then you'll be able to serve Yahweh. You know, and in verse 25, we read, uh, so Joshua uh, made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of Yahweh which he spake unto us, It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. And so the people departed into their inheritance. Now, quite interesting to see what's happening here. Joshua's impressed upon the people in verse 23 that they must put away the strange gods which are among you and incline their heart unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel. And then we read of Joshua setting up a great stone there under an oak. But the Hebrew reads, he set it up there under the oak. As if it was a particular oak that was was mentioned there. It was a particular, the oak tree there by Shechem. And he set that stone under that oak. You know, we go back to the book of Genesis. We go back to Genesis chapter 33. And there in Genesis chapter 33 we read of the way that Jacob built a, bought a field at Shechem and he erected there an altar. And there Jacob resided for some period of time. And there in that altar that was set up there in that field that, that, that was later left to Jacob, to Joseph, He built his altar and there he worshipped. Then chapter 35 we read that the time came when he was going to have to leave Shechem and he was going to have to move up to Bethel. In verse 3 we read in chapter 35 And let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto Ael who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. You know, the oak. The oak is a symbol of strength. And Shechem means the burden bearer. And there was the strength of the burden bearer. And there Jacob took away the strange gods out of all his household and he hid them under the strength 
of the burden bearer. And there hidden under that oak were the idols of the house of Jacob. And there Joshua is gathering together the tribes of Israel. And he says unto them, put away all your idols. Cleanse your hearts of all your idolatry. And he sat there under the oak, which was by Shechem, he set up a stone. And that stone was to be a witness of that covenant that had been made. And that stone was to stand there as a witness under the people. There, under the oak, the strength of the burden bearer, the very tree under which Jacob had hidden the idols of his house. And there that stone stood, and it was a stone of witness. And you know, to those that broke the covenant, that stone was a rock of offence, because it witnessed against them. But you know, to those who were faithful, that stone was a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary because it was a reminder of them of the faithfulness of God to them. You know, some 1,400 years later, we find a man and a woman on that very spot having a little discussion about worship. The woman's in an absolutely confused state of mind. She doesn't know what she worships because her heart's flattered up with idols. And that man quotes to her from Deuteronomy, from Joshua chapter 24. He says, The true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now try and get the picture a little bit. That man is spoken of in the prophet Isaiah as a, ro- a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence to both the houses of Israel. Why? Because he witnessed against them and they stumbled on him. But the same prophet in chapter in the, the same chapter of his prophecy tells us that that stone was to be a sanctuary for those who were faithful. You know, and there's that stone witnessing to that woman, telling her to purge her life of, the, of her idolatry. The woman was asking him the question: Shall I worship here or shall I worship there? He says, "You can't worship at all." Because you're too confused in your mind. You're too divided in your affections. You've got to straighten your mind out. You've got to get your knowledge right. You've got to empty your life out of all your idolatry. You've got to be prepared to give your whole self without reserve. To give yourself in strict accordance with Yahweh's revealed will. If you're going to worship the Father. You see, as far as these statements worship in spirit goes. We just take a look at the epistle to the Philippians once again in chapter 3 where the apostle says, the apostle Paul says speaking of himself, he says for, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. Verse 3 of Philippians chapter 3 the apostle is speaking of himself and the true believers. He says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, having no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. You see, the flesh has to be offered as a whole burnt offering. We have to give ourselves in complete surrender to Almighty God that he might work in us and we might be prepared to walk in strict accordance 
with his word. You see, and there was the Joshua chapter 24 being enacted all over again. You know, and, and, and as, that, as the Lord speaks to that woman in this way, he tells her that she's got to worship in spirit and in truth. He says, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And what a comfort to her. But she's faced with the prospect perhaps of making a lot of sacrifices, giving up a lot of things that she gets pleasure out of, giving up a lot of things that are of value to her. Why should she give her, why should she have to surrender and sacrifice all these things? Because the Father is seeking people who are prepared to do that. He's seeking, looking, desiring for people who are prepared to do that before him. Why is he seeking people prepared to do that? Well, you see, in verse 24 he says, God is a spirit. But that's not really correct. It should read, God is spirit. There's no A there. If you check the dialogue, you will see that that is the case. It reads, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. And we read through the word of God the way that the flesh and the spirit are opposite. They're at enmity one with another. Galatians 5.17 speaks of how the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Uh, Romans 8 tells us how, how the flesh and the spirit are absolute enmity one with another uh, 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 and there can be no peace or harmony between the two. But you see, the point that the Lord is making here, I believe, is, is very, very beautiful. He says, God is a spirit. God is spirit. Now, and spirit is something that's living. It's something that's powerful. Spirit is a motivating, driving force. Spirit is something that involves disposition, feelings, affections, emotions. You should take a look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 we have the enmity that's between the flesh and the spirit. But in verse 22 he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You see, they're, they're moral qualities. They're things that involve a person's disposition to, into life. They, they involve his feelings, his infections, his, his emotions. They, they, they form a motivating, driving force in his life. It's something that's living and something that's powerful. You know, and that woman was saying, well look, is the temple at Jerusalem the place for worship or is it a temple at Shechem that we've got to look for? You know, you can't, brethren and sisters, put spirit into bricks and mortar. You can't take bricks and mortar and hunks of wood and put emotions and affections and disposition into them. Of course God can't dwell in temples made with hands. God's not interested really in a temple at Jerusalem or a temple at Shechem or a building anywhere else. You know, when we go back to that story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, see Jacob's there at Shechem. He's at the burden bearer. 
his house clears out all the, all the idols of their hearts. They're all hidden under the strength of the burden bearer at Shechem and then Jacob journeyed up to the house of God. He went up to Beth Isle, the house of God. And here's the woman now of Samaria in a confused state of mind. But she's come to Shechem. She's there before the strength of the burden bearer. She's got that stone of witness there telling her she's got to cleanse her life of all her idolatry. And from, but where does she go from there? She's got to move up to Bethel, to the house of God. You know, and in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22, the apostle speaks to us concerning the house of God. He says in verse 21, verse 20, And ye are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of the God in spirit, as it reads in the literal Greek. You're a habitation of the God in spirit. There's the house of God. There's Bethel. And that was where the woman had to go from there. She's got to empty, clear out the idolatry of her life. She's got to empty that out at the feet of the strength of the burden bearer, even the Lord Jesus Christ who has taught him to her. She's got to give herself completely without reserve to the influence of Yahweh's word. She's got to walk in strict accordance with Yahweh's requirements and she's got to journey up to the house of God and God is spirit. You see, the Lord says in chapter 6 of John, verse 63, he said, It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. See, there's the spirit, brethren and sisters, it's the word of God. Now, we can carry a Bible around under our arm for 50 years, but that's not spirit to us. We've got nothing but a bundle of paper and ink under our arm. But when that word is read and understood, when it's absorbed into the mind, it starts to affect our disposition toward life. It, it becomes a motivating force within us. It affects our feelings, our affections, our emotions. And it can create in us those glorious fruits of the Spirit that we see there. And by that means, Yahweh is establishing a house for himself. That's why he's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That he might build a house of living people. And that's what the Lord's trying to impress upon this woman. As if he's, you see, she started the conversation, our fathers worship in this mountain. It's true. Jacob worshipped in that mountain. The Lord had made the, the woman had made reference to, 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 uh, to Jacob in verse 12. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? The Lord says, yes, you look back to your father Jacob. You look to the way that he worshipped in this mountain. 
He buried the idolatry of his house under the strength of the burden bearer and he journeyed out to the house of God. And that's what he was calling upon that woman to do likewise. To give herself without reserve. To walk in accordance with the revealed will of God that she might be made a dwelling place for Yahweh. And so we find in verse 24 he says, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That word must, it's a little word in the Greek, it's only got three letters, it's D-I. It means precisely that, it means must. It, It conveys the meaning of a necessity. It's an absolute necessity that you worship him in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. And it's through the means of spirit that he is creating a temple for himself. There's no choice about it. We can't say, oh well, I don't feel like doing it in spirit and in truth, so I'll do it some other way. It is an absolute necessity. There is one way and one way alone into the kingdom of God. And that's to surrender oneself totally to the influence of the spirit world and to walk accurately in accordance with what the spirit reveals. Now in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, the apostle says in chapter 5 and verse 15, he says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now that word circumspectly would perhaps be better translated accurately. See then that you walk accurately, not as fools who don't know where they're going, but as wise, as people who know the revealed will of God and are walking in those ways. You see, knowledge is something of vital importance. We must know what Yahweh's will is and we must be prepared to walk in his ways. And so, you see, the Lord has impressed that upon the woman. And the woman got that, got that point. She understood that point because in verse 25 we read, And the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah is coming, Messiah coming, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. So she, she saw the need for knowledge. She saw the need for, 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 for the light of the truth to shine into her life and she said, look, I know that Messiah's coming. Messiah and Christ, of course, are the uh, uh, synonymous terms, one being Hebrew, one being Greek. It means the anointed. I know that Christ is coming and when he is coming he will tell us all things. You see, the woman had the five books of Moses. She had enough there to show her that Christ would come And in the 18th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy we have a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, that's like unto Moses, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. 
and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And so you see, there was the, the, the prophecy of, of the coming of the Messiah, that Yahweh would raise up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto Moses, and, he, and God would put his words into his mouth, and he will speak unto the people all that God commands him. He said, that's what the woman was waiting for. That's what she was referring to there when he said, when he comes he shall tell us all things. And so you see, she sees now the need for a, for a correct and right understanding of the truth. And she says, oh well, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. You know, the Lord revealed himself here to this woman in a way that he, he didn't do to the people of his own nation. You know, the Lord had never said words like that to Nicodemus. He left it for Nicodemus to come to the conclusion himself. Because you see, Nicodemus with his knowledge of the word of God and with the, with the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he had seen, Nicodemus should be able to come to that conclusion himself. There was nothing really to stop a logical man like Nicodemus in Nicodemus' position to come to the conclusion that there was the Messiah. And so you see the Lord left it to men like that to work it out for themselves. You see this woman hadn't been, didn't have the, 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 the things that Nicodemus had. This woman wasn't in the privileged position that the Jewish people were in. She didn't have in her possession the, 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 the full revelation of the truth. And so you see, the Lord revealed himself to her. He said, I that speak unto thee am he. You know, we read on in the next few verses, not that we're going to consider them now. We read of the way in which the woman leaves her water pot standing by that well and she hurries back into that city and she, she, she's gathering the people together to take them out to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. That woman's forgotten all about the, the water in that well now. She's forgotten all about it because in her she can feel within her, welling up within her, a new purpose in life, a new joy, something she'd never experienced before and it's welling up within her as her understanding is beginning to be opened and the glorious things have been taking place before her and filled with joy and enthusiasm now she can't get back into that city quick enough to gather the people together and to bring them out to show them this wonderful man that she's found. You see... The water, she had begun to drink of the water that Christ would give. And that water was beginning to be in her. A well of water leaping up that was going to lead her on unto eternal life. And may it be, brethren and sisters, that we might drink of that water also. That we might be brought to that position where we might really and truly see ourselves as what we are that we might recognise that our whole lives are open and naked in Yahweh's eyes. There's nothing we can hide from him. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. And let us see the need to heed the exhortation of Joshua to cleanse our lives of idolatry, to cleanse our minds of confusion, that we might know what we worship, that we might know how we should worship that we might give out, totally surrender ourselves before Yahweh 
that what it had seen might make us a dwelling place for himself through his spirit that has been given unto us in the pages of his word.